when you walk through an art museum, what happens? You see some interesting things. You see some not so interesting things. <laughs> and if you're like us at all, you're probably a little bit sleepy. Well, grab a cafecito and listen up. It's Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. We are both artists, so we look at art history through that perspective. We cover the artists you know and those that have been ignored for so many different reasons. We look at the context of the time. We compare it to today. We don't dumb anything down, but, and this is a big but, hey, we like to have a good time, okay? Nos gusta to goof <laughs> around, all right? We have hungry pantry no, bonds that no, might startle you. It's a long story. We, we feed them our materials. Art is just a visual language that is open for anyone to interpret. So if this all sounds good to you, join us on Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. Hey, what the? Oh, all right. Hi, Mom. From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we deep dive into your favorite Canadian content. We just completed our six-part series on the Kids in the Hall, and their Amazon Prime show premiered last week. For the next two weeks, as I continue working on the second series of this show, I'll bring you a couple of interviews. Next week, I'll be talking with longtime Kids in the Hall writer Paul Bellini. And in this episode, I sit down with John Semley. John is a freelance writer and author of two books, Hater, On the Virtues of Utter Disagreeability, and the book he's on here to discuss, his 2016 biography, This is a Book About the Kids in the Hall. So without further ado, I welcome John Semley to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North. <laughs> what was I just saw? Was I was watching a clip of um, uh, David Sedaris on Conan from like 1996 or something, and he said he writes at night, and he said he does it because it's because uh, it's unseemly to drink that much during the day. <laughs> I know that feeling for sure. It's like I'm on a deadline. Don't come in my office. <laughs> working from seven till two in the morning. Um, so uh, you won't remember this, but back, uh, I want to say it was 2014, 2015. Um, I had written you on Twitter because I had written, I had read a piece I think you had written for now. Um, and I'd said, oh, you know what? I'd really like to read a book of the kids in the hall just like this. And you wrote me back and you said, eh, something might be in the works. And I think it was two years oh, later. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, I think it was two years later. I saw, I saw, I saw your book on uh, on my brother's nightstand, and I said, "Oh shit, that's the guy. <laughs> that's the guy that said there might be something coming." I so being so coy. Well, I think you probably you were probably talking money with people at, at that point or something. So, <laughs> but um... yeah, I was talking. Uh pennies not dollars oh yeah no 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 i i'm in the canadian publishing industry as well i know i know that too well so i think i just wanted to kind of start with that as you know from from one author to another i'm just kind of interested in in how the book started as a project for you uh well i was introduced to my uh current literary agent uh, for whom I have not been the proverbial cash cow. Let's leave it at that. Um, and he said, you know, first book, my dream is always to write a book about the history of garbage, okay. not the Scottish rock band, but just like detritus, waste. Um, and he's like, look, don't do that. Just write about something you know everything about. 
So at the time I was like, oh, the kid's in the hall. Uh, and I, I think I had just written this cover story for Now Magazine when I worked there, uh, which was tied to, it was in 2013. And I think the kids were reuniting for reunion shows. The tour was called Rusty and Ready, uh, presented by the Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival. Uh, and that was kind of like a test run for a 2014 tour that they did of new material. Um, so I thought, you know, I can take, I did so many interviews for that piece and, you know, just the piece ended up being 5,000 words or something, which is long for an alt weekly, but short for a book. But I had so much left over that I was like, well, I could, I could write a book about the kids in the hall. Um, so I wrote a book about the kids in the hall called, this is a book about the kids in the hall. <laughs> well, you said, you said you, uh, you were told to write, uh, write about something you knew the most about. So um you know right, that, what you know that's what yeah. they tell novelists right? yeah <laughs> and what you what you knew best was the kids in the hall so what, what what's um i think we're about the same age so what's uh what was your entry to the to the sketch group yeah so i'll say i'm i was born in 86 so i'm 35 yeah. so i kind of missed the kids in their initial run or uh, more appropriately i think it was the kind of thing that i was kind of peripherally aware of um and i have like vague memories of like the chicken lady sort of the broader stuff i guess kind of stuck in my head but then when uh i think ctv launched the comedy network they would broadcast the kids in the hall in syndication all the time all the time so I, I remember it was on right when I came home from school, probably 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and I would watch it every day. And I loved it. And I became obsessed with it. And then I became obsessed with it again. This would have been about middle school, I guess, early in high school. Then I became obsessed again when I went to university. And I had roommates from the U.S. who weren't familiar with the kids in the hall. And that was around the time the DVDs came out. So that was another thing where it's like, all right, let's watch every season of the kids in the hall, you know? Uh, and it's kind of, yeah, just been one of those things as far as TV comedy. It's like the trifectas are like kids in the hall, Mr. Show and the Simpsons, the Simpsons to a point, I guess. Yeah. And so, yeah, like I said, it's, it sounds similar to me. My, my intro to them was a little bit earlier in that I had, I have a brother who's nine years older than me. And, um, I remember very clearly, um, one night when my parents were out, um, him watching the kids in the hall and basically not so subtly threatening me, like, don't tell mom and dad that I let you watch this. And that was my first, like, this is, this must be something really cool. But this is when it was, this is when they were originally airing. And I just remember they were the thing that was cool in comedy when I was really young, um, up to the point where uh in the sixth grade i performed a, a gavin sketch for uh the the talent show and i just now i find it such a, a funny idea of what the teachers must have been thinking it's like it's like the reverse of the kids in the hall themselves right <laughs> yeah. you have a uh you were a little kid playing a little kid against a little kid playing <laughs> yeah. an adult <laughs> doing my best bruce mccullough impression um, so you're painting a chair hey yeah that's what i'm doing all right that's why i stopped i see so I suppose you want me to paint your chair? No, thanks. I'll do it fine. Oh, okay. There's this kid in my class, and she lives on her own without any parents or guardians, and she's eight. And she took the number off her house so the cops can't find her to take her to jail, and also she took off the mailbox so they can't send her a letter to say she's in trouble and has to go to jail, 
And she's eight, like I say. Eight, that's young. Yeah. And in the garage is a skeleton of a coyote. And it's one of those real valuable... Uh, in the um, in the intro for your book, you you describe the 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 group or the the book actually the story of the book as the improbable sort of success story of a of a band of five bass players. Um, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a bit. Sure. Uh, well, the five bass players thing comes from uh, a Bruce McCullough line, I believe, uh, and which is. As anyone watches the show knows, there's lots of jokes about bass playing and bass players. Basically, the idea that like the bass player is the guy in the band that's kind of gawky and dorky and no one really likes. He never gets the girl. Uh, maybe true of drummers too, but drummers are at least like so weird and crazy. Uh, so yeah, it's like the bass player is the loser of the band. And I think how Bruce explained the kids in the hall to me is like they were the guys who are all the bass players right uh they were all kind of the outcasts of certain groups and they all came together uh improbable maybe i would not use that word now it is probable because it did happen uh and what was the other part sort of success sort of success Uh, yeah yeah they were they were sort of successful uh you know they were popular they got a hollywood movie made but again a great bruce mccullough line he said everything we touch turns to cult um (laughs) Which, you know, a lot of people would be happy for that, but I don't think it uh, keeps the lights on necessarily. The Kids in the Hall are the sort of thing for me, it's like uh, that they were cults, that they were never totally popular. That's what made them cool and interesting. And to me, it was really the first time I understood that like comedy could be cool, you know, sketch comedy specifically. Now, do you think it's that's something they believed for themselves that um, mainstream success might undermine what they were doing with the, with the work that they were doing? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, because here's the thing. They did have mainstream success. They were on HBO and the CBC, and they were on CBS for a while. You know, they had a movie produced by Paramount. Now, that movie flopped horribly, and it basically ended the troupe, which was kind of ended during its production. But I don't think anyone chases a cult audience. Um, but I do think they knew that their personalities and their style of humor – was never going to be like, I don't know, as big as Saturday Night Live. Uh, but, you know, there's there's other cases of stuff. Like, again, you look at the best seasons of The Simpsons. It's like the humor there is so weird and specific and focused, and it was the biggest show ever. So it, it can happen. But, uh, you know, like I said, I don't think they were chasing a cult audience, but I don't think it surprised them that they never really became as big as SNL. One of the things I, I wish I had more time to talk about in the podcast and I, and I don't really touch on, but you touch on in your book is the theme of dads and stepdads and surrogate dads, uh, not just in their in the work, but also uh, in their careers. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, that theme and what they share in, in, in those terms. Well, I think as an angry young man and kids in the hall are like definitive angry young man chip on the shoulder comedy. Your dad is really your first enemy, right? This is Freud 101. Like your dad is really the person who is the person you compare yourself to, the person who you're, is your kind of impediment to achieving what you want. Uh, the person for whom maybe you can first feel kind of pity and pathos, you know, as you become a teenager and your dad goes from being this kind of heroic figure to, you know, a guy who has to go to work every day and he's kind of a dopey loser. Uh, dads are 
big figures. Uh, and I know that from, from interviewing them and talking to them, you know, the, the kids in the hall, the members, they each had very kind of specific relationships with their fathers. Uh, and I think that comes into the work. You know, there's a joke in Brain Candy about Kevin McDonald's dad struggling to blow his own brains out you know there's jokes about wanting to fight and kill your own dad that abound in the show uh and i think the dad sort of represents this is my own dime store psychology i guess but it's the first sort of emblem of authority that you run up against right and the kids comedy is sort of anti-authoritarian so the dad is the first kind of policeman authority figure uh but he's also the first kind of pathetic hollow man so those kind of ideas i think are are coming into play and there's also the idea of the surrogate dad uh i think it's i think it's actually kevin that that talks about um always seeking a father figure the group seemed to need a father figure um in order to organize themselves yeah lauren michaels i think played that role for them uh when he was producing the show uh kelly macon who was one of their directors was kind of like someone who could corral them uh lauren michaels it's interesting like i was very lucky to get an interview with lauren michaels for this book and uh the last thing he said to me in his kind of like Lord Michael's voice was like, make sure you're nice to them. Uh, That's a bad Lord Michael's impression, but people know how he sounds like Mark <laughs> McKinney and brain candy, basically. Um, so I thought that was very interesting from this sort of paternal perspective um, about how, you know, even though he could say all kinds of things about them and he could like not talk shit about them, but he could obviously have a very frank appraisal of their talents and the ways in which they kind of undermine their own potential careers. He wanted to sort of protect them in that final instant. So I thought that was interesting. Talking about talent. I talked to, um, Paul Bellini about this a bit, but I, I wanted to get your view on what you thought each member brought to the team in terms of their their specific talent or um, contribution to the to the group of five. I think that uh, Mark is the sort of everyman, and I believe the best actor of the bunch. Mark is a comedian in the sort of Peter Sellers tradition, right, where he's a total chameleon. Uh, you know, he can nail that. Uh, interestingly, I find that Mark is often people's least favorite because he doesn't really make that much of an impression. Uh, but I don't know. I can't play favorites. Uh, Kevin McDonald, I would say, is generally the sort of uh, broad face-pulling humor, which they make fun of in the La Poupée sketch about how he's kind of a Jerry Lewis hit in France because of his broad comedy that no one understands. <laughs> That's a little uncharitable because Kevin McDonald writes some of the most depressing stuff in the show and performs in it. But I think, generally speaking, that's the vibe. Bruce is the heady sort of intellectual guy who is like, to me, the to me, it's like. Uh, and they'll probably all hate this if they hear it, but it's like in the same way that the Beatles are Paul McCartney's band, the kids in the hall are Bruce McCullough's troop, in my opinion, uh, which is not to say that he did the most, but I think his sensibility defines the sensibility of the group. Uh, you know, cynical, the perpetual angry young man. What was his book called? Young Drunk Punk? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Dave also also kind of cynical. Uh 
jaded, you know, the guy who's always kind of like unruffled, perpetually drinking a cup of coffee because he was a caffeine addict. And people say the best looking lady uh, when they did drag, which I think is unfair to Mark. Uh, Scott. <laughs> well, they, they said the crew, <laughs> the crew thought that he was the best looking lady. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Um, now, Scott. Uh, Maybe maybe Scott and Bruce are like neck and neck in my mind in terms of who I think are, are the funniest. Now, obviously, the Kids in the Hall is associated as being like kind of a queer show ahead of its time with sort of gay representation. That's because of Scott, right? He's so funny. And so like it's impossible to talk about because it was like the late 80s, like to be like he was in your face and like unafraid to be who he was. Sounds so like dorky now, but it's true. Um the buddy monologues are still so funny. Uh, but then also Scott was an amazing actor at playing uh, straight men, right? Like Danny Husk is his other great character, this sort of like dopey, totally aloof loser. Um, so Scott to me is like, yeah, I think maybe pound for pound as a performer, the funniest. And then also this kind of like free radical who could do anything and was apparently just like a total pain in the ass to work with because of I think I think you're absolutely right. In in you know, it's probably been five or six years where I've since I've really dove into the kids' work in any appreciable way before doing this project. Um, and to me, Scott's the standout for me now. And I don't, it wasn't like that when I was younger. Um, but he is he is so funny and. and I- I think because the makeup was like, you know, there were two troops, like there was the troop that uh, Mark and Bruce were in and then the troop that uh, Dave and Kevin were in, they had established rapports. Scott was kind of this like theater sports guy in this troop called the Love Cats who was desperate to be a part of it. Like, I think that the the way that he seems to be kind of like a free floating radical, uh, I think that comes with like how he joined the troop, right? But man, that guy's so fucking funny. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I wonder. I, that's it's another thing that I, I regretfully can haven't been able to touch on so much in the podcast episodes. But the idea of Scott being an an, an out gay male at that time, uh, I don't think it. Well, it's, I know it wasn't something I appreciated as a kid because I didn't. You know, you don't know any better, right? Like he's just someone on TV, like all the rest. Um, he seemed unusual in in terms of. Um, you felt like whatever he was doing was a little bit dangerous, but I feel like not enough is spoken about Scott Thompson and and his presence on TV and and how um groundbreaking that was at the at the time yeah, I, I would agree and it's like when, when I was watching when I was younger like I didn't get the buddy monologues like I'm like oh this is like a gay guy uh, you know I'm a teenager whatever I have all kinds of prejudices like I didn't really get why it was funny it's like maybe I'm missing something and then when you become an adult it's like you see how satirical they are like how he's using that character to say all kinds of incendiary things like he's basically like a lisping gay Andrew Dice Clay which I think he even makes a joke about in one of the monologues right like he's using this character to say things that like you would never be able to say otherwise uh and it's powerful and it's cool but yeah, I mean, certainly on the kids in the hall, like I think everything he does, it's not, you know, even when he plays a character like Danny Huff, and I mean, it kind of comes across in the movie where the Danny-ish character is literally closeted, but he's so good at getting that sort of repressed arch masculinity in the same way. Uh, so it's not that he's not just like Buddy Cole in my mind. He's an extremely versatile. At the age of 24, Scott exited the closet and entered show business. Here I am. 
getting made up in front of a camera, being called a drag queen by the Toronto Star. How are your parents dealing with all this? Um... You must be a nasty piece of work in some sense for parents. Yeah, absolutely. I am a, for lots a nightmare of child. I know yeah. that. Yes, I am. They're dealing with an openly gay son who declares himself on national television with a towel on his head. And not one of hers. <laughs> <laughs> My mother said to me after I'd done that, she said, well, now that you've got that out of your system, you can do street legal. You know, now it's time to get into a suit and uh, be a lawyer. After these messages, we'll be right back. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is sponsored by Audible. Do you like getting information through your ears? Well, Audible has an unmatched catalog of audio, podcasts, and original programming. And you can try it for 30 days free by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. Listeners to this podcast might enjoy listening to One Dumb Guy, Paul Meyer's authorized biography of The Kids in the Hall, or the Audible original podcast, Highly Legal, hosted by Jay Baruchel and written by kids biographer John Semley. But if you're signing up for Audible today, and I pray that you do, you're signing up for Audible today, and you're going to download just one book for free, I'm going to recommend Steve Martin's autobiography, Born Standing Up, as read by the author. You like comedy, you like show business history, so you need to read this book. I remember when I first got it in 2008, I was working at the Canadian Screen Training Centre, and I read it every day walking to and from work. I would hold the book straight out in front of me, thinking this was the safer way to walk and read. I could see traffic, I could see people coming at me, but everyone knows the safest way to walk and read is to listen to an audiobook. So sign up for Audible today by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. That's audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. You can find the link in the show notes. Remember, your first book is free, and you can cancel any time. But signing up through that link really helps this podcast. Now on with the show. Hello. <coughs> Back to our show. Now, uh, Lauren Michaels is quoted as saying that um, he saw the kids as, as being the next thing. So SNL was one thing, um, SCTV was another thing, but in the same general vein and then the kids in the hall though they were the next thing they were the 80s um i know i know they were they were a bit about uh a bit before your time but you know having having interviewed them and written about them and and done the scholarship on them you know what is it you think they were what what was the uh what was the leap that they were making in the 80s well yeah i think i i think i make a comparison to grunge in the book and nirvana specifically even where it's like i think the kids in the hall did for comedy what grunge did for like rock music or popular music right which is that they they came at it in this angle where it was like there was a hipness to it and there was an intellect to it and there was almost like an, a sense of entitlement and confidence that like we're gonna do this and we're gonna be kind of weird and strange and alienating and like we don't care uh, and I think that coming out of the 80s, which was a decade, I mean, whatever, this is just brushstrokes, right? This is like the cliff notes of like, the 80s sucked because it was broad and excessive. Obviously, there was tons of cool shit going on in the 80s. But like the, the cultural trope of like everything being kind of glamorous, again, excessive, class obsessed. Uh, I, I think that like grunge music, the Kids in the Hall's comedy sort of like was prickly and was kind of against that, you know? Uh, and I think that similar to the grunge movement, this was the last time 
in history when five white guys could have that impact, you know, uh, where they could kind of come out and be like, we're angry young men from the suburbs, we're totally middle class, but we have an attitude. Uh, it was kind of like the last time that that cultural perspective would have the same value, you know? Mm -hmm. And do you think the show is important? Like, do you feel like the show, the show has a legacy that, that continues? Absolutely. I know people still get into it. I know when it went on gem, people were getting into it. I think it's a timeless show. It's a timeless show because it, it's funny. It's a timeless show because their sketches aren't topical in the way that Saturday Night Live is. Now, it's easy to dump on Saturday Night Live. I happen to think Saturday Night Live has periods of being extremely funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, I it's a fucking classic. Like people will watch the kids in the hall forever in the same way that people watch Monty Python forever or those four seasons of Mr. Show or Tim and Eric forever, you know? And there's something about the fact that there's a beginning and an end of it that makes it more iconic, you know? Like the, the stuff that the kids, like you go back to watch old SNL, early SNL, people are like, oh my God, it was so funny. You watch the fucking bees or bassomatic 5000s like that shit's not funny anymore you know <laughs> but like you can watch a kids in the hall sketch from 30 years ago and it still has the ring of truth to it maybe in 10 or 20 years i don't maybe it won't i don't know i think there's just something universal too in the i, I think the the thing i i mean for all intents and purposes I had, I had a really good upbringing but there's something so familiar with the way they do family dynamics in that show and and that stuff's universal and 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 forever right when, when Scott as the mother is like, if you do get drunk, do it in the basement so you don't fall down the steps. It's like, that is shit my mom would say to me when I was in like grade nine, you know? Like, yeah, they totally, they they understand that. I think, again, it's that, it's that suburban attitude. It's the same sort of like, I'm Bart Simpson, who the hell are you attitude. Right, right. So what do you think the legacy of the show is then? Do you see it? Do you... Do you... Do you see the touch of the kids in the hall? Like, I don't write about comedy enough. I mean, for my book, I was grateful to talk to like Tim Heidecker, Nathan Fielder, people like Janine Garofalo, people who really loved the show uh, and who kind of grew up watching it in repeats. Uh, and I think for our generation, it's like, I mean, I guess I'm kind of like post Gen X a bit, but I think for even Gen X more so who watch in the first run, it's like what SCTV was to the generation before, you know? Uh, maybe Martin Scorsese will make a Kids in the Hall reunion documentary that will not be released like he did with SCTV. So yeah, yeah, I, th I, I think there's a legacy, like, and I, I think that you can draw like a direct line in, in influence and attitude. Like, I think you go right from Kids in the Hall to Mr. Show, you go right from... Well, not right from, but like Mr. Show to like the state to stuff like Tim and Eric. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that like if the kids like, you know, whatever, someone else would have done it. Right. But if the kids in the hall again, I think showed that like comedy sketch comedy was a cool thing to do. Even Monty Python. Monty Python's funny. Right. But it's so intellectual and it's so fucking dorky, you know, uh, that. I don't know. I think the kids in the hall were a real intervention. And Living Color is the other one that happened simultaneously that mm -hmm. had a, a different vibe that was totally massively influential uh, and an amazing show. But do people talk about Living Color anymore? I mean, I guess all the actors on it are like super famous now, so it does come up. But in Living Color is a good, uh, an, an interesting thing though, right? And, and then that's a show that, that did do a lot of parody and that's a show that maybe did lock itself in time. Um, when you talk about Buddy Cole being, um, um, being kind of a, like this, 
aggressive figure that could say really subversive things that or transgressive things that um that people kind of accepted from the mess of of that character i also think of the what was it men on film and how uh those those don't age well (laughs) those don't age well at all so yeah i mean well there's a lot of stuff under the big color that doesn't age well and probably some stuff in kids in the hall too uh i think even the level of drag maybe people would have issues with these days but whatever i'm not trying to excuse it but i think the one thing it's the same way with drag and the kids in the hall it's like they come at it from a degree of character and a degree of like sensitivity where it's like again it's not like monty python where it's like the joke is that a man is wearing a dress and a wig it's like no they were playing characters who were women which demanded that they wear dresses and wigs and i think that it is a key difference yeah, you're absolutely right. The The joke never was that, um, you know, at the closest it might ever be is when Mark is, you know, playing a teenage girl and he has a big, you know, grill on his, he says, <laughs> braces on his teeth. Melanie, <laughs> Melanie was one of the characters that made the shaky transition when Mark joined Saturday Night Live, if yeah. I recall. Yeah. Uh, oh, did you ever, have you seen, have you seen, I don't know where if you've seen those episodes, like the season or two that Mark was on there. Yeah. Uh, Mark has one of my favorite roles where he plays the Paul Schaefer in one yeah. of the Norm Macdonald Letterman sketches. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, whatever, if you're a fan of Canadian content, uh, you can't do much better than that. <laughs> no, it's, it's spot on. But the, I remember seeing, cause I remember being excited for whatever they were doing after they, after they finished that show. And I remember seeing him do the chicken lady once on uh on snl and it just ate shit from my memory just nobody well, it, got it's it it's like when they tried to get martin short to do ed grimley on saturday night yeah. live and it's like nobody it's like that it's a good indication that those audiences are so different not yeah. only literally yeah. where it's like chicken lady or ed grimley or melody comes on and people have no familiarity with the character but the sense of humor is so different right yeah this afternoon, get out here! It's a talk show. We'll be meeting best friends who have become ex-friends. Don't even go there, Angela. It's a sitcom. I lent you this bike in perfect condition. No. Jonathan Torrens tackles the issues. So you borrowed fifty bucks. Did you pay him back? I couldn't pay it back right away. I just never heard from him. See? I hit a drop from the four hundred one. And gets his audience involved. Was the audition as bad as maybe he thinks it was. Yeah. Stick around. Jonavision this afternoon on CBC. Do you think, from your interactions with the the members of the group, do you think that they relied on conflict to to be creative? Was it a crutch for them, or was it they were creative in spite of the fact that they were in conflict often? I, I, I don't know that it was a crutch, but I do know that they relied on and sought out conflict, definitely. And I know that there was a lot of you know, I'm not using vanity as if it's like the worst thing. Everyone's vain a little bit, but it's like there was the desire to one-up each other. There was the desire to be funnier than the other guy. There was desire to write a sketch that was better than the sketch that someone wrote last week. Um, you, you know, it's, I don't think that's that bad. You know, I think it, I think it probably created a lot of toxicity as we say these days. And there was probably ended up being a lot of uh, hurt feelings and bad blood, but you know, that bad blood pushed the, pushed them into interesting places. You know, it's like that fucking Beatles, the get back documentary that just came out. You know, the fact that George Harrison didn't want to be there is kind of what made everything work. In remembering back to the time when the, when the show was ending, 
um, and I was a little bit older and I could watch it in real time. And you just thought that, you know, these guys would be the, the leading voices of, you know, film comedy and TV comedy for, you know, the next whatever foreseeable in the same way that, you know, John Candy and Martin Short and those guys were in the eighties and early nineties. You, you, you hoped that for them and you, and you saw that for them, but it never quite came together in that way. These guys are funniest when they work together. That's always the case. That's why they still do stuff. I also suspect they're the most profitable when they work together, which is why they do stuff all the time. Um, and I think that they know that about themselves. You know, uh, fucking guys from Kiss did four solo albums that everyone makes fun of, but people still seem to like Kiss. You know, uh, so I, I think that 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 is kind of the dynamic. But I agree. Like, yeah, Dave Foley looked like he was going to the moon. I think it's the matter of being, again, like five bass players. How many solo bassists can you name? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It's co-produced by Sonia Jamidi. Be sure to check back next week for my featured interview with longtime Kids in the Hall writer Paul Bellini, after which I'll be switching gears to a new series on the career of filmmaker David Cronenberg. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This helps the podcast get noticed. And we're available just about everywhere else. Follow us on Instagram at Once in Hollywood North. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can find more Canadian ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. If you want anything more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. If you want to watch The Kids in the Hall, their entire CBC series is available now on Amazon Prime. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Sorry, just one more question. Do you know anything about that Scorsese doc? Is it actually not coming out, or are you just saying, I've been waiting for this for three, four years? I went to the taping of it. Right. Uh, and- I wrote about it at the time for the Globe and Mail, but I think fucking Scorsese's got more shit on his plate, like than right. anyone working these days at 80 right. years of age. So, right. uh, yeah, I don't know. Like it was that that reunion, the SCTV reunion, was supposed to be part of this Scorsese doc about SCTV. But then it's like the more you think about it, it's like okay, well, how do you incorporate a film reunion like this into a documentary? Yeah. I can see why it's like not a, a top priority for him. <laughs> uh, it's supposed to be Netflix, but, though, wasn't it? Was it a Netflix Yeah, I think thing? you're right. Yeah. I think but. you're right. I mean, maybe maybe someday, but whatever. He's doing Killers of the Flower Moon, and yeah. he's got fucking Jonah Hill playing Jerry Garcia, and God knows what else in the hoppers. So, yeah. you know, an SCTV documentary that like 6,000 people will watch may not be a top yeah. priority. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and again, I thank you for your, pa- your patience in organizing this. Oh, dude, it's totally okay. Like, you know, it kind of felt like a thing on my calendar that was a, a bit of a hassle, but I really enjoyed talking to you about oh, it. So thanks. it's my pleasure, honestly. I'm not about the media original. Hold on.